be lost uh, to
welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, August 9th, 2019. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco, and we're on a lonely land. And a resource I wanted to share with folks is going to conspireforchange.org. And once you're at that page, if you select resources and then decolonization, there is a suggested reading list that folks can see. Uh, There is a native land interactive map, as well as contemporary Ohlone history. Uh, An article, Accomplices Not Allies, Abolishing the Ally Industrial Complex, Processes for Decolonization, and or excuse me, processes of decolonization and much more. So again, if you go to conspireforchange.org forward slash resources forward slash decolonization, or if you just go to that website and then click on the resources and then click on the decolonization, uh, you will be brought to these uh, suggested reading, the suggested reading list, which I recommend folks do. Oh, uh, oh. Feeling, I'm um, still waking up here a bit. It's been a, it's been a long week. Over at, uh, I mean, shit. I say that every week, and it seems like things get more and more intense. Uh, there's been more mass shootings. Over 600 people were arrested by ICE in Mississippi. I've heard reports that at least 300 were returned, but it was a raid that took place at a chicken processing plant, and. Many feel this was like in retaliation because workers were demanding rights and they had a a lawsuit that they had won that was against folks being sexually harassed. So it was retaliation against the workers. We'll be getting into some more uh, stories. I mean, there's a lot, obviously, I never quite get to, it's only a two hour show and there's a lot of, uh, it's difficult to talk about and at the same time, not talking about it doesn't help anything. So at least sharing information about what's happening, especially from a perspective of what names it for what it is, which is just a, a rise in white supremacy, which of course has always been in this country and was around the, the founding of this country and colonialism and militarization and violence. And there's the idea of that they, people in positions of power want to blame it on folks with mental health issues, even though people who have mental health issues are more likely to be victims of violence than to perpetrate it. Oh, goodness. So, ugh. Uh, I did want to share that there are lots of actions that are happening. So uh, no matter where you are in the, no matter where you are, there's something that you can participate in. Um, I recognize not everyone can go in person. However, you might know someone who can. It's all about sharing information, sharing resources, mutual aid, etc. So for folks who are able and are in San Francisco or in the Bay Area, there there have been uh, 30, it's called, 30, it's Month of Momentum, 30 Days of Action to Close the Camps, and it's happening outside ICE headquarters in San Francisco every day in August from noon to 1 p.m., uh, which is at 630 Sansom Street in San Francisco. And if you'd like more information, there is uh, an event invite as well as another page that you can like on Facebook. If you go to tiny.url, excuse me, tinyurl.com forward slash month of momentum, uh, that will bring you to the uh, list of action. There's also other actions. So even if you can't go in person and protest, you can donate to bail funds, you can host an asylum seeker or refugee in your home, you can hold local officials accountable. They have a whole list. Um, They have flyers. We have flyers here at the station. If you ever come by Mutiny Radio, we're on the corner of 21st and Florida. You can pick up some flyers here as well. And the great thing is that different groups have been coming through uh, each day 
outside the ICE headquarters to organize and to have their rallies. So uh, there was one day when it was it was mothers and children. So there's families and they made cards for kids who have been detained. Another day was Ben the York and just lots of different groups who have been there and have been, everyone's been coming together and it's really beautiful to see that. So if you'd like a whole list of the groups, again, please check it out online as well. And you can also, they have phone numbers as well. If you see the, if you see ICE activity, the phone numbers to call in San Francisco, the hotline is 415-200-1548. In Alameda, it's 510-241-4011. And in Contra Costa County, it's 925-900-5151. And we'll be sharing more information about this later on in the program. We do have a call coming in around 1230. So I want to share some like a news story about what we'll be talking about a little bit to get folks and myself on board to have a more informed conversation so i'm going to go play the audio now that is from um that is from the the news story and i also wanted just to share the name of the band that we've been playing so far is krungbin and heard about them on the current and they have a lot of really great music so Wanted to share them with you all. Oh, goodness. I My head's going in a lot of different places, uh, which is not new for me. It's just what's happening. And so, yes, so this is from New Center, Maine. It's like NBC. Um, however, this is, this is what it is. And I'm going to refresh the page so we can start from the beginning. Uh, 22 BIW protesters arrested, charged, uh, eight-week total of 47. And I will read the article, and then I guess I'll play the video. The group was protesting during the uh, christening event for the USS uh, Inouye. 25 were arrested in a separate incident April 27th. This is in Bath, Maine. 22 people protesting at the Bath Ironworks event on Saturday were arrested and charged with obstructing a public way. The event was for the christening of a of the USS Daniel Inouye, or DDG-118, a non-public invitation-only gathering, and came just eight weeks after 25 protesters were arrested April 20, 27th, whose charges were later dropped. Bath police said a total of about 50 people from groups Maine Veterans for Peace and Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space were protesting... Uh, from various spots adjacent to the shipyard and were primarily gathered on Washington Street by King Street. Some later moved to the area of BIW Southgate, they said, and others went to Vine Street. Those arrested were taken into custody between 8.45 and 10 a.m. And then they quote the police and then named people who were arrested. I don't see what why uh organizers said saturday's protests were part of the ongoing conversion campaign in maine we engaged in civil resistance to underscore our conversion demand biw should be helping to solve the climate crisis not building weapons that make the problem worse mark roman said all 22 arrested were processed um at the sagadahawk county building 12 were bailed out on personal reconnaissance uh 10 refused to sign any summonses or bail slips and there's a court date that's set for August 6th, uh, was set for August 6th, and they have some footage here. So I will play the the news coverage, and again, just curious to see how the the news portrays this this action. 
22 people protesting at a Bath Ironworks event this morning were arrested and charged with obstructing a public way. The event was for the christening of the USS Daniel Inouye, or DDG-118, a non-public, invitation-only gathering. Just eight weeks ago, 25 protesters were arrested at another christening. Those charges were later dropped. Bath police said a total of about 50 people were protesting from various spots next to the shipyard. They stood in the streets and blocked the visitors' buses from being able to enter BIW. Mark Roman of Solon, one of those arrested, said, We engaged in civil resistance to underscore our conversion demand. BIW should be helping to solve the climate crisis not building weapons that make the problem worse. Okay, so that's pretty much what I shared. So not much more there from the news report, but also just wanted to share it just in case there was something additional that we were missing. So we'll be talking to one of the people who um, has been involved with one of the groups in Bath uh, around 12.30. So please do stay tuned for that. Oh, goodness. Um, I'm going to take a bit of a music break. Um, you can tell I'm getting my thoughts together here a little bit. Um, actually, maybe not a music break. Let's play in an informative video, shall we? And this goes to the, the tech that's doing business with ICE right now. And this was shared by uh, Now This, which you can find on Twitter, at Now This News. And this is, Big Tech is making it easier for ICE to do its job. Here's how Big, te big Tech company Palantir Technologies aids in the deportation of undocumented immigrants. Big tech is making it easier for ICE to do its job. Sure, immigration rates have taken place under every administration since the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency was created in 2003. They happened under President Bush and President Obama. But now, thanks to advances in technology and outsourcing around immigration enforcement, we're seeing tech companies take on a whole new role when it comes to aiding the deportation of undocumented immigrants in America. Let's back up and talk about a tech company that gets its name from Lord of the Rings. Palantir Technologies. Palantir was founded in 2004 by PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel, along with other PayPal alums. Billionaire investor Alex Karp is the current CEO. To put it simply, Palantir connects dots that may have been missed by human analysts. The purpose of Palantir is to bring the Palo Alto culture in the form of a platform to an enterprise to revolutionize the work being done in that enterprise on the back of this platform. What we're actually building not just addresses the problems you have today, but will scale into the problems you may have tomorrow. According to a report by Bloomberg, the company quickly established itself through contracts with the Pentagon and CIA in Iraq and Afghanistan. These government agencies use Palantir's tech to comb through financial documents, flight reservations, phone records, and social media. It then shows whatever linkages exist between the data. The technology was an instant hit, and its success with the military snowballed into other government contracts. Fast forward to today, and Palantir has become instrumental to the law enforcement in the U.S. According to a report by social justice organization Mahente, Palantir provides ICE with mission-critical services. A seven-page document titled Unaccompanied Alien Children Human Smuggling Disruption Initiative details how Palantir's investigative case management allowed agents to launch an operation to target and arrest family members of children crossing the border. The operation resulted in the arrest of 443 people. 
Palantir has been careful to distance itself from any role in the deportation of undocumented immigrants. It says it doesn't work for the part of ICE called ERO, which stands for Enforcement and Removal Operations. But emails recently obtained by New York Public Radio shows just how involved the company is in workplace raids, which is a growing phenomenon. According to the report by WNYC, from October 2017 to 2018, 1,525 arrests were made by ICE at workplaces nationwide for civil immigration violations. That's up from 172 the year before. The email showed Palantir employees giving ICE agents crucial technical guidance ahead of an upcoming operation to detain undocumented workers. What began as a $41 million contract with ICE from 2014 to 2017 has been extended every year since, according to government records. Palantir currently has a contract with ICE for more than $51 million. While this may be the first time you've heard about Palantir, a company we're very familiar with is making all of this possible. Amazon. It's a two-pronged issue, the first being that Amazon's cloud service, Amazon Web Services, hosts Palantir. And while Amazon isn't the only tech company doing this, it does have the most stake in the game. Amazon has more federal authorizations to maintain government data from a variety of government agencies than any other tech company. Amazon has 204 compared to Microsoft, which comes in second, with 150. The second part has to do with Amazon's facial recognition technology, recognition. According to government documents obtained by a Freedom of Information request filed by the Project on Government Oversight, Amazon pitched its real-time facial recognition technology to ICE officials in 2018. With Amazon's recognition, ICE would be able to discreetly surveil public locations permanently by setting up cameras and linking them to Amazon software. Several studies have shown that facial recognition tech is more likely to mistakenly misidentify people of color as targets and lead to wrongful arrest. Amazon faced pressure both internally and externally following the release of these documents. Advocacy groups and Amazon employees called for the company to keep its facial recognition out of government agencies. Amazon wants to see a broader discussion about the issue. There's been relatively little discussion about whether regulation or legislation is needed in this new area. So where does this leave us? The 2019 federal budget includes an ICE technology modernization program worth $24.6 million, a biometric matching service worth $97.2 million, and an automated identification system worth $11.9 million. It's unclear whether or not AWS and Palantir are partners in this process. And And welcome back to the Weekly Review. I'm joined here by Lisa. Lisa, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Roman, for having me. Yes, I feel free to uh, introduce yourself to the listeners. I'm Lisa Savage, and I live in Maine, and I'm part of the um, Convert BIW campaign here. Uh, BIW stands for Bath Ironworks. I know there's a there used to be a Bath Ironworks shipyard in San Francisco as well. Bath, Maine is the site of a historic shipyard that used to build uh, tall ships and now builds warships and mm. is now owned by General Dynamics. Um, a coalition of us, yeah, really. Um, a coalition of uh, peace groups, environmental groups, faith-based groups, 
uh, have been working on um, sort of the implementation of what a Green New Deal would look like uh, with specific focus on uh, Bath Ironworks because all it builds is warships now, hugely expensive, wasteful, polluting um, death machines. And we would uh, really like to see this historic um, factory, in, which is the biggest employer in Maine, uh, be turned to building something to solve the climate crisis rather than uh, make the climate crisis worse. Uh, they could be building um, a light rail transportation system, which Maine lacks. They mm-hmm. could be building, um, you know, uh, sustainable energy components for all kinds of different, um, either offshore wind turbines or solar or uh, or just insulating houses better here in the cold where we have to heat. And um, any of those things would not only address the climate catastrophe and not contribute to um, killing innocent people abroad, but it would also generate far more jobs. Right. And the reason why that is significant is that uh, Maine only has four people in Congress. We have the same two senators that our, every state has, but we only have enough population to have two representatives. Mm. And every time General Dynamics uh, christens, which is a disgusting word to use in this context, mm-hmm. a, war, a new warship, all of our elected you know, congressional critters are down there um, kissing the ring of General Dynamics. And when challenged by their constituents to stop doing that, they say, but jobs, do you want me to mm. throw 5,000 people out of work my first term in office? Mm. But really, economists have been studying conversion for quite a while, uh, since you know at least the 50s, when a scholar named Sidney Melman uh, began uh, writing and studying about it. And, you know, if they use economic models to predict how many jobs are generated by a particular investment, say a billion dollars, um, they have found... Uh, repeatedly even updating the study that more jobs would be generated by pretty much anything and uh, an investment in, in almost any other sector of the economy healthcare education uh, building sustainable energy solutions that i mentioned before even just giving money back to taxpayers like the bush administration used to do would actually generate more jobs in the long run mm-hmm. um uh, building um, weapons is very capital intensive and doesn't actually require a lot of people. Um, much of it is mechanized these days. You know, robots do a lot of the work. So there's a lot of environmental damage being done by the U.S. Navy, mm-hmm. even aside from carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions. Um, their uh, their sonar pollution kills a lot of um uh, sea life. Yeah. They dredge the river at, at a very crucial time to make it deep enough to launch these warships. And, um, it, you know, it, it's just everything about the situation is bad for the environment. I'm, I'm always reminded of the Vandana Shiva um, saying, uh, the environmentalist in India, Vandana Shiva, said something to the effect that maybe I won't maybe want quote her exactly right, but if it harms the environment, it's not an investment. Yes, yes. Um, so getting our congressional representatives or local representatives to the state of Maine gives General Dynamics big tax breaks every year because, like, they, General Dynamics really needs that as one of the top five mm-hmm. weapons manufacturers in the world. Um, getting our, uh, you know, elected officials, the people that have the decision-making power to recognize what their constituents want and so forth is very, very difficult because... General Dynamics puts a lot of money into the political system, 
um, either one of the corporate war party Democrats or Republicans mm-hmm. takes big money, big money from General Dynamics and um, the, the uh, corporate media outlets here in Maine pretty much pay homage and won't really report on our efforts. So, you know, there's the ideological, you know, foundation of what we've been trying to do. Um, strategically and tactically, we've been getting arrested every time they so-called christen a warship. Mm-hmm. So um, I should say we risk arrest, and many of us have been arrested multiple times. Um, generally, it's for blocking the road where buses are coming in, bringing guests to these events. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, uh, it has been criminal trespass because we knowingly or unknowingly strayed over an invisible line that uh, was the property line for General Dynamics. And um, last uh, June 22nd, 22 of us were arrested at a christening. And um, the state has decided to change tactics. Uh, The DA for that county um, had last time a bunch of us got arrested for blocking the road said, I'm not prosecuting that. That's a big waste of time. She was newly elected. She said, you know, don't waste my staff time on this. And she just dismissed the charges. Um, This time around, I don't know what kind of pressure she's under, but she suddenly pulled pulled a U-turn and said, oh, now we're going to change those charges from obstructing a public way to jaywalking. So it's just a traffic citation. And you'll have to pay a fine of $150 or possibly face losing your driver's license if you refuse the fine. Um, seven of the 22 arrested went to jail rather than pay the bail bond fee this past time. And they spent two nights in jail and were then arraigned. And um, so we're not exactly sure. In the past, we've often um, had a jury trial. And, in fact, the time we were charged with criminal trespass, um, we had a, a jury trial that went quite well. We have a really good attorney here in Maine, Logan Perkins of Belfast Criminal Law, does pro bono work on behalf of environmental and anti-war activists. Um, and she very ably led our case to um, the judge acquitted us on the basis that the state had failed to prove their case. And it was a very interesting a conservative but sort of libertarian-type judge who said, Bath Ironworks appears to have outsourced its security to the the city of Bath Police Department. That is not how things are supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, the First Amendment says you do have protected political speech in a public place. And if General Dynamics wants to say, yeah, but the Bath Ironworks is in a public place, then the judge is like, but you were having a public event and the public was invited. And the only reason these people were arrested at your, you know, that you told the Bath Police Department arrest them, and they did, is because you didn't like what their signs said, um, you know. So that's political speech. So it was a really interesting development. But, of course, uh, they've changed their events to be not public. You now have to have tickets to get in. Mm. And the state is also, you know, making some changes on the legal end. So there's a coalition of about 20 groups here in Maine that have been waging the conversion campaign. We had a press conference the day before the last christening. That was on June 21st in Portland. We invited all our elected officials, including the municipal and state reps. We invited the press. We got one newspaper there. Um, Actually, I shouldn't say that. We got a local newspaper there, and we got one of the big dailies in Mm -hmm. the area where 
Black Irons weren't served. And we had some alternative media, which was great. Yes. So we were able to make it good. But we had um, invited people from many different sectors of Maine, people that work on the community water justice, uh, indigenous leaders. Um, Barry Dana is a Penobscot past chief. He opened our um, and ceremony, or the press conference, rather, by speaking. Um, and we had the leader of the youth climate strikes in Maine, Anna Siegel. She spoke, she told us she had just turned 13, and that she, when she blew out the, cakes on her, the candles on her cake, she thought, 11 more years until human extinction is irreversible. Most of us in the crowd are like grandparent age, and we were like, <laughs> you know, oh, my God, this is what 13-year-olds are thinking about on their birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that the co- the conversion um, campaign will join the big um, climate strike on September 20th that, that the youth are planning and asking for um, other allied groups to join in. Um, and uh, so Veterans for Peace is one of the groups that's been very key in waging this campaign all along. And then the group that I coordinate is called the Maine Natural Guard. I do have a website. If you use a search engine and search for Maine with an E on the end, mm-hmm. stay Maine, Natural Guard, um, you'll find the website. And uh, the Maine Natural Guard campaign is pretty simple. It's a pledge to connect the dots between the Pentagon and climate catastrophe. Mm-hmm. You know, because under the uh, Kyoto Accords, the military of all the countries that signed it were exempt from their emissions being counted. And huh. the Earth's atmosphere says, oh, the military, I like them. They keep us safe. Thank you for your service. We won't count your emissions. You know, obviously that's bullshit science. Um, and so that was fixed a little bit under Paris. Like, they're not automatically exempt anymore since the Paris Accords, but it's not mandatory that they count military emissions. So it's been very difficult for environmental groups to get a handle on the Pentagon's real role in climate change and how big it is. You know, the Pentagon emits more uh, fossil, consumes more fossil fuels than 140 nations. As an organization, it is the biggest fossil fuel consumer on the planet. And their country, and the type of fuel that they burn uh, in their airplanes and other war machines is much more polluting in terms of emissions than, say, you know, you, you driving your Prius across town. So this campaign, the Maine Natural Guard, just asked people, when someone's talking about climate catastrophe, bring up the Pentagon. Or when someone's talking about security, bring up the fact that climate crisis is our biggest security threat. Yes, um, yes. And, you know, put get these two, um, you know, elephants in the same room right. so that we can really be talking about what would meaningfully address the climate crisis that we're in. Um, so that's the main natural guard, and that's the, a group that I lead. And um, I'm not sure what else you would want to ask me about. Do you want me to tell you some of the other groups that are part of the coalition? Sure. Or, um, well, the Maine Green Independent Party has been um, involved, and Jill Stein was one of the speakers at our— Jill Stein was the presidential candidate mm-hmm. in 2016 for the Green Party. Oh, yes. Um, she, spoke, she spoke at our, um, at our press conference on the 21st in Portland. And um, so that was a, a real great connection to have. Mm-hmm. And the uh, local uh, Green Party folks have been very active. Um, several of the peace and justice groups from around the state, even rather far from Bath, which is kind of near Portland, Maine, southern Maine, um, have been very active. And uh, there are lots of other plans, you know, cooking about how to get the word out. 
um, how to continue to bring the message to the public. Um, we we find that most people do not have good information sources. Mm-hmm. They they think they're getting the news by watching corporate news or yes. listening to NPR or something. And yeah, they, you know that that so isn't true, especially in these this day. Yes. So um, that it's you know it's very much a communication effort to help people understand. Why do they take? I'm a school teacher, actually. I'm a reading interventionist, a very uh, small, very poor rural school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a third of my paycheck is taken by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And what do they do with it? Is, it's the you military. know, fund warships right. instead of treating the climate emergency like the emergency it is and retooling every, you know, industrial capacity we have to uh, address that problem. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, uh, I'm a grandmother and it's scary to me to think about what kind of future my grandchildren might be looking at. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. yeah. When you were, were speaking earlier, the thing that I thought about was here in the Bay area in Richmond, there's the Chevron, which also, it just seems like similar in terms of folks defending it because a lot of people work there, even though they yep. pollute a lot and they also yep. are connected to a lot of politicians. So it's a similar uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a similar situation here as well. Yes, I'm afraid it's coast to coast. Um, and uh, I've been seeing a, a meme lately that the U.S. spends more on fossil fuel subsidies than they do on education. Mm-hmm. That didn't surprise me at all. But, yeah. you know, that's just fossil fuel subsidies. Um, I do know that there is not a single congressional district that does not have some kind of war contracting going on in it. Ugh. You know. They figured this out a long time yeah, ago of yeah. how to make people in Congress too scared to stand up to, you know, the Pentagon and say, we don't want this. And just the revolving door between, uh, you know, these corporations and the government at the federal and state level now is, is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our members, Bruce Gagnon, um, who's a Veterans for Peace person who um, – it went on hunger strike last year because the state of Maine was proposing to give a $60 million tax break to Bath Iron Works. Oh. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> Maine is, has very, very low income areas mm-hmm. where people are living in dire poverty. Yes. Children are growing up in dire poverty. There are probably um, 43,000 children living in, you know, poverty right now in the state of Maine. But yeah, let's give. General Dynamics CEO who made, you know, who had a $6 million bonus last year. Let's give them more money because they need it. Um, Bruce Gagnon decided to go on hunger strike, and he was outside the gate talking to the workers, um, um, you know, telling them, I'm not different from you. I'm mm-hmm. on your side. I don't want to throw anybody out of a job, but, right. um, you know, this, this work contracting has got to stop. Um, that campaign was somewhat successful. We did manage to pressure the state government into reducing the amount of the tax break from 60 million to 45 million. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Bruce fasted for 38 days, something wow. like that before his help, you know, sort of advisor said, you better, you better stop. Um, but we've tried a variety of tactics as you could hear. And we're always looking for new ideas or, you know, other ways to get the word out. Um, Maine is kind of, I often say, is one big small town. Mm -hmm. Um, There aren't very many people in Maine at all, and um, you kind of all get to know each other after a while. So um, communications here is a little bit less challenging than someplace like the Bay Area. Yes, yes. um, Where there's just, you know, it's a flood of information and media all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, 
<clears throat> so we are hopeful that sensible people who care about their future and their children's future and their grandchildren's future um, will wake up and, and realize that the war machine must uh, must be brought to a halt. Here, here. We don't really have a choice. We really don't. Wow, thank you for, for sharing all this information. It's a lot to think about. Well, thank you, Roman. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious also as to um, outreach with other, like I oftentimes think about different organizations coming together for the same purpose. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious about other like environmental groups out there that might want to consider, uh, you know, understanding that anti-militarism is an essential part to combating climate change. It's a very interesting um, issue because so many of the big environmental uh, organizations have deep ties to the Democratic Party. Oh, yeah. And the Democratic Party is just as much of a war party yep. as the Republican Party, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're aware. So yeah. they, you know, like Bill McKibben, for instance, of 350, uh-huh. uh, he just had an article in June in the New York Review of Books basically saying, ah, oh, the Pentagon isn't really a big factor in climate oh. change. In fact, they could be the, you know, help be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And we need to, he's, he's fond of using uh, military metaphors. Like a, a year or so ago, he had written something like, we need to mobilize like we did in World War II to fight mm-hmm. climate change, yada, yada. But I think that most of the big environmental groups are, uh, they have deep ties to the Democratic Party, and, yeah. they, and they're not going to call them out on their militarism. Right. And that's really unfortunate. Hmm. Yeah. Because, again, the, the planet's atmosphere does not care whether you have a D or an R <laughs> after your name. Right, it, right. It just doesn't. Yeah. Um, so. Hmm. That's kind of a factor, too. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. So I don't know what else I could tell you. You know, you could find us online. Mm -hmm. Um, Anybody can take the Maine Natural Guard Pledge. You don't have to be in Maine. Um, You can talk about the Pentagon and its climate giant carbon boot print, um, no matter where you live. And um, those 800 uh, military bases abroad uh, have a pretty horrible carbon boot print as well. so um, if people want to help kind of, uh, you know, connect those two dots, I, I think it may be really useful going forward Yes. Uh, for people to understand yes. that the Pentagon is not only not keeping us safe, it's making us a lot more unsafe. Right. Yeah. The way they conduct their business. Indeed. Something else I'd thought about was that the the little that I know about Maine politics would be Susan Collins, of course, mm, and mm-hmm. I would imagine she's not uh, not on our side. Let's just say. No. And I remember when she was supporting Brett Kavanaugh, there were folks who were uh, going to run against her, and I was curious if mm-hmm. you knew much about that, and if her the folks who were running against her um, were also in line with uh, with your groups. I'm sure that they there will be. Um, you know, a Democratic candidate that will run strongly against her. Mm-hmm. Who will run? Uh, who would run from the main Green Independent Party against her? I couldn't tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, other, you know, uh, libertarians are pretty strong in Maine, mm-hmm. um, but we have ranked choice voting in Maine. You know, okay. Um, at the for federal elections, mm-hmm. uh, we didn't. We've we've tried to get it for state level elections too, but we had a really bad governor, almost as bad as oh, I remember with bad hair. 
um, he, you know, term limited out. We don't have him anymore. Yeah. But um, th- that was a sort of a stumbling block to getting ranked choice voting at every level. But we have it at the uh, national level. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was key in the last election. Um, the incumbent was a Republican named Bruce Colloquin, representing the second district. That's where I live. It's the poor part of Maine, the northern poor part of Maine, mm-hmm. um, was ousted because of ranked choice voting. Hmm. Um, because the way that it works in Maine is if nobody uh, wins on the first on the count of who everybody put as their first choice, they then go to who everybody put as their second choice and distribute those votes. And um, in fact, Jared Golden, a uh, Democrat, was elected and ousted uh, Bruce Poliquin. So ranked choice voting is really interesting um, and seems really new for the U.S., but they've been doing it in you know, sensible countries like Australia for years. Yes. Um, but it's a game changer, and this whole false dichotomy of, oh, either you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And my husband has been voting green for decades, and, you know, so many times the spoiler saying, oh, it's your fault that George Bush. Oh, yeah. Uh, Even before ranked choice voting, I used to say, hey, we live in Maine. How many electoral votes are we talking? I think we're up to four now, but nobody ever won or lost a presidential election on Maine's electoral votes. Yep. If you can't vote your conscience in Maine, where where can you? Thank Um, you. I completely agree. When I was a younger woman, I've held my nose and voted for corporate Democrats. Mm -hmm. I'm just not doing that anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would love to see uh, Susan Collins ousted. She is not our friend, and she's not on our side. And she's not holding any town halls during the congressional recess right now. She's in Texas being wined and dined by her big campaign contributors. So, oh. You know, what does that tell you? Ugh, enough. <laughs> she's not concerned about the child concentration camp. She's not mm-hmm. concerned about abortion rights. She's mm-hmm. not, you know... Um, she is a Republican who, for many years, was considered moderate and centrist, and she almost always voted uh, right on women's issues and children's issues. So lots of women in Maine that were not Republicans have, in the past, voted for Susan Collins for those reasons. But mm-hmm. once the demagogue with bad hair rose to power, I think that um, she is an ambitious woman who saw which way the wind was blowing. And um, mm-hmm. but She lost me big time, not on the Kavanaugh thing. But when she introduced Jeff Sessions glowing oh. to her Senate committee, uh, you know, like a known Ugh. racist for attorney general, and she just glowingly just sang his praises, I was like, wow, that's, you know, what more do you need to know at that point? Um, but, yeah, it's just, you know, she's been in there quite a while, and I think she's really vulnerable now, but... Are we going to solve this at the Congress level? I don't know. I think the people are going to have to rise up and solve this. Yeah, um, yeah, you know. I, I agree. I mean, looking at history, it has been through direct action and protests yeah. and riots and strikes that have changed history. Exactly. So we're out there protesting. And Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Blocking the road, and people tell us it's not nice and it's not professional. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm more scared for of civility. not doing it than I am of doing it at this point. Yes, yeah. yeah. I hear that. Yeah. yeah, the cost is far too great to not take action. Indeed. All right, well, um, is it so is there a place online that folks can uh, find more information? Sure. Um, I have a, it's a Google site, so the URL is kind of long, but if you use any search engine to search for Maine Natural Guard, mm-hmm. 
um, you will find my website. There's information on the conversion campaign right at the top um, of the landing page. And then I've been collecting resources about the connection between the Pentagon and climate crisis for years, for the last three or four years. There are a lot of them now, a lot of scholarly studies. It seems like I'm adding a new link every couple of weeks. So the resources page is pretty interesting for that. And then I'm also a blogger. I blog at went to the bridge. That's to the numeral two went to the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I blog about various issues, including the conversion campaign, uh, the rise of white nationalism and white supremacy in my area, mm. also um, the child concentration camps, which are just you know family separations. I'm as soon as we hang up this phone, I'm going to go stand on the street corner with a friend of mine who's a retired educator who's been vigiling every Friday since March, I think, mm-hmm. um, about the uh, detention camps where little children are being tortured Yeah, with our tax dollars. Yeah. And, yeah. <sighs> it's crazy times. Indeed. <sighs> well, I appreciate you calling in. Thank you and for um, for giving me the opportunity, Roman. Absolutely, and definitely keep us uh, updated. Thank you. I will do that. All right. Take care. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Big thanks to Lisa Savage for calling in. Uh, we're going to take a bit of a, a music break, and we'll be back with some new stories after this. Stay tuned.
And welcome back to the weekly review. Playing some songs from the band Krungbin from the album Con Todo El Mundo. And if you want to find the band, they spell their name K H R U A N G B I N. This is from an album that came out last year. On to an important article that I wanted to share with everybody out there, uh, at least the folks listening, of course. Oh. I haven't started yet. I'm already sighing. It's It's been one of those weeks I think folks can relate. Ugh. And this is um, an article that came out pretty recently. It's from truthout.org. The right wing is trying to make it a crime to oppose fascism. And this article was written by Shane Burley uh, for Truthout and was published on August 9th, 2019. Conservatives in the U.S. have long sought to reframe grassroots political activism as dangerously radical, but efforts to criminalize protests have rapidly intensified since Donald Trump's election. Most recently, Senators Ted Cruz and Bill Cassidy introduced a resolution that names Antifa as a quote-unquote domestic terrorist organization. This was a move designed to punish dissent against both racist groups and policies of the government, David Rose, a member of Oh, excuse me. This was a move designed to punish dissent against both racist groups and policies of the government, David Rose, a member of Portland's Rose City Antifa, told Truthout. The senators are attempting to open the door to illegalizing any form of dissent against race- racist institutions or groups. The resolution, uh, S- uh, Res 279, uses the recent controversy over the clash between right-wing reporter Andy No and rep- protesters in Portland, Oregon, as the impetus to designate anti-racist protesters as a criminal operation. For Cruz, this is sly political posturing. No, in his loud right-wing talkosphere made hashtag Antifa terrorists the key talking point for weeks as a minor scuffle was transformed into a nationwide threat in the popular imagination. The bill itself, while a non-binding resolution, has found an enthusiastic supporter in President Trump. Consideration is given is consideration is being given to declaring Antifa, and they fucking quote him, and I can't even repeat his lies. Um, so they share a tweet that he wrote on July twenty seventh, uh, including uh, criminalizing the movement. Um, and uh, the author says uh, this makes it clear that the goal is to increase law enforcement action on anti-fascist protesters. Just like COINTELPRO attacks on the black power movement or the green scare suppression of the environmental activists in the early 2000s, these these new forms of protest repression would have rippling detrimental effects on left-wing movements. Resolution 279, titled A Resolution Calling for the Designation of Antifa as a Domestic Terrorist Organization, lists a series of incidents from the Portland, Oregon anti-fascist protests that happened on June 29th, as well as earlier Portland protests. A number of groups, from Rose City Antifa to Occupy ISPDX protesters, would be labeled Antifa with a broad brush and condemned in language akin to that used after the 9-11 attacks. This stands in contrast to the fact that Antifa has never been charged with killing anybody. In fact, politically motivated killings are almost exclusively the province of the far right, with victims numbering well over 100 in the past two years, including those from a recent shooting at a food festival in California and several mass shootings at religious sites. Most recently, a shooter in El Paso, Texas, killed 22 people in an attack that was motivated by anti-immigrant hate and quote-unquote white genocide conspiracy theories. 
The resolution does little to specify what further action would be taken beyond applying this label. There are also no clear legal consequences for the designation. Instead, it's likely that it would be a clear message to law enforcement that the gloves are off in their treatment of protesters. This could mean the use of Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO, uh, charges to try and go after what is deemed a criminal conspiracy of anti-fascist activists. Because RICO is so broad, it, is often, it has often been used to bring down entire organizations or networks of activists for the illegal behavior of some who may or may not be associated with them, creating a string of arrests that prosecutors attempt to prove is a criminal conspiracy. It could also mean police using informants and threats of enhanced prosecutions to drum up questionable confessions. Indictments could come down against those who simply interact with protests, similar to how the J-20 protesters at Donald Trump's inauguration were rounded up and charged with felonies simply for participating. More than anything, the resolution could lead to heavy-handed policing, the use of grand juries, the subpoenaing of journalists' resources, and an overall draconian approach by police. It would also send a public message that anti-fascism is outside the bounds of normal political expression and make the public fearful of anti-fascist activists while giving the signal to right-wing vigilantes like the Proud Boys to engage in violence against them. Investigations and heightened publicity would end the, anonymi would end the anonymity that many anti-fascist activists use to protect themselves and their families, creating a direct line to retribution. This would have a massive chilling effect, making participants in anything labeled as anti-fascist organizing subject to serious consequences. This idea is not new to Ted Cruz. The Unmasking Antifa Act was introduced in 2017 by former Rep. Daniel Donovan and was specifically intended to make use of masks by protesters illegal. During protests of oil pipelines at Standing Rock, bills started to be introduced to make protest blockades illegal, starting in Oklahoma in 2017. Over the past two years, dozens of bills have come forward to limit protest rights in response to Black Lives Matter and the organizing against ICE deportations. Many state bills were introduced to essentially make it legal to hit protesters with your car. This Antifa bill is a step toward placing anti-protest restrictions on a particular political point of view. Lacking consensus opinion about what Antifa is in the administration or the resolution, and Antifa is not a single organization, this criminalization could create a wide net and include many types of protest. This isn't a surprise. Ted Cruz has always courted the far right. What we're witnessing here is conservatives like Ted Cruz making common cause with neo-fascists in the hopes that they can control them rather than compete with them, said Antifash Gordon, an anti-fascist activist operating through a pseudonym on Twitter in an interview with Truthout. Gordon's work often includes revealing information about white nationalists who are trying to go under the radar. Antifash Gordon has pointed out that Ted Cruz has his own relationship with the far right, including playing footsie with the Patriot Militia Movement active at the Cliven Bundy standoff. This is a serious challenge to the supremacy of the state, Antifash Gordon added. The state and its representatives like Ted Cruz have responded by strengthening their alliances with fascists. This is the road to fascism and Ted Cruz is paving the way. The resolution specifically names Rose City Antifa and says that the organization explicitly rejects the authority of law enforcement officers. RCA is based out of Portland and was one of the groups that organized the anti-fascist protest on June 29th, which was intended to be a community defense action against the Proud Boys, who were also trying to march that day. The identification of RCA in the resolution holds special significance, seeming to assign blame to the group and indicate that its activist work should be seen as organized crime. One thing that could result from this is a wave of surveillance and fishing expeditions that would curtail the civil rights of all kinds of activists, said 
says David Rose. We've seen this before from the government in the case of anti-war and anti-globalization protesters in recent years, Rose added. This could be the beginning of an even greater incursion on the free speech and free association of rights of protesters using funding previously earmarked for fighting terrorism. Since the singling out of RCA seemed like a clear signal from Cruz and others that RCA should be targeted for legal action, the group put out the following public statement with several other anti-fascist groups signing on. Not every person of conscience, conscience agrees on tactics, but they would all be considered terrorists according to this proposed resolution, because they declare themselves opposed to white supremacists and concentration camps. This resolution would open the door to violations of their civil rights. If Antifa are terrorists, so are over 1,000 Portlanders who stood against Patriot Prayer on June 4, 2017 and August 4, 2018, and the hundreds who peacefully blockaded the ICE offices in southwest Portland. It would call the activists and spiritual, spiritual leaders who stood against white supremacists in Charlottesville on August 11 and 12, 2017, domestic terrorists. As the GOP shifts further to the right through the Trump coalition, white nationalist policies and the participation of organized white supremacist groups have become more commonplace. The anti-fascist movement is one of the largest grassroots social movements that is confronting both the threat of white nationalist violence and institutional racism. So many anti-fascists see this resolution as an indication that they see the movement as a threat to their political hegemony. I think the organizing and coalition building that anti-fascists have been doing across the country has been working, and fascists are starting to see us as an actual threat to their power, says Effie Baum, an organizer with the anti-fascist organizer Pop Mob, who helped to organize the June 29th anti-fascist protest in Portland, and who signed on to the resolution penned by Rose City Antifa. As the media circus following the 29th reached a fever pitch, it provided a perfect opportunity for the right to crack down on those who oppose them. There are literal concentration camps on our borders, and more mainstream Democrats are finally starting to pay attention. They needed a martyr like Andy Ngo to redirect the conversation away from themselves. Since large-scale coalitions are involved in this organizing, and because there is incredible overlap between most social movements against oppression, this resolution will be felt in all spaces where organizing takes places, from reproductive justice to immigrant rights to environmentalism to the labor movement. All leftist activists are by default involved in anti-fascism. There are above-ground groups and underground groups, said an organizer with Eugene Antifa who asked to remain anonymous due to concerns about retaliation from the right. Individuals involved in above-ground groups are often targeted the most by opposition and the state because their identities can be more easily can more easily be known. Both types of groups are essential for a movement. Above-ground, leftist activists would likely experience the brunt of this bill if passed, since they are an easier target for the state. Mass social movements usually play out through a unique interplay of actors and entities, from grassroots groups to nonprofits to activists who prefer to remain anonymous for fear of retaliation from neo-Nazis. By attacking the entire movement, Ted Cruz's resolution makes all forms of activism appear suspect as they are always in a state of permanent interaction. Efforts to criminalize radical politics, both legislatively and also rhetorically, have an effect of reducing the legitimate space of resistance, said Mark Bray, the author of Antifa, the Anti-Fascist anti Handbook, in an interview with Truthout. So while on the face of it, different measures on Antifa or Black Lives Matter or anarchists or environmentalists may seem like separate issues, they have a collective cumulative effect so that the next time someone wants to snap out resistance, there is a precedent for it. While many people have assumed that the resolution will go nowhere, Trump's series of public declarations means that it could have legs. 
Trump is doubling down on his rhetoric to appeal to his base, and any effort to crack down on anti-fascism could would win him a great deal of quote-unquote law and order appeal from within that constituency. Now, right-wing pundits are suggesting the recent shooting in Dayton, Ohio, which killed nine people, could have been Antifa-related, though there is no actual evidence to suggest this. This rhetoric could even could add even more impetus to state officials to criminalize activists. In the face of this threat, anti-fascist activists will need to continue building their coalitions to ensure that public solidarity and mutual aid become the standard response to attacks against them. That support is the only thing that can create the antidote to state repression. So again, if you'd like to see and or share this article, you can find it at truthout.org. It was published today, August 9th, and it was written by Shane Burley. And I also wanted to comment on the video I was playing before about Palantir and the internet stopped a little bit of the way through, so we didn't get to finish listening to it. So I wanted to um, maybe jump right into it and see if we can uh, share the um, share it again, and I'll, I'll start in from about halfway through so we can finish listening to this informational video. And again, you can find the video on, it's from Now This News, which is at Now This News on Twitter. Talk about a tech company that gets its name from Lord of the Rings, Palantir Technologies. Palantir was founded in 2004 by PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel, along with other PayPal alums. Billionaire investor Alex Karp is the current CEO. To put it simply, Palantir connects dots that may have been missed by human analysts. The purpose of Palantir is to bring the Palo Alto culture in the form of a platform to an enterprise to revolutionize the work being done in that enterprise on the back of this platform. What we're actually building is not just addresses the problems you have today, but will scale into the problems you may have tomorrow. According to a report by Bloomberg, the company quickly established itself through contracts with the Pentagon and CIA in Iraq and Afghanistan. These government agencies use Palantir's tech to comb through financial documents, flight reservations, phone records, and social media. It then shows whatever linkages exist between the data. The technology was an instant hit, and its success with the military snowballed into other government contracts. Fast forward to today, and Palantir has become instrumental to the law enforcement in the U.S. According to a report by social justice organization Mahente, Palantir provides ICE with mission-critical services. A seven-page document titled Unaccompanied Alien Children Human Smuggling Disruption Initiative details how Palantir's investigative case management allowed agents to launch an operation to target and arrest family members of children crossing the border. The operation resulted in the arrest of 443 people. Palantir has been careful to distance itself from any role in the deportation of undocumented documented immigrants. It says it doesn't work for the part of ICE called ERO, which stands for Enforcement and Removal Operations. But emails recently obtained by New York Public Radio shows just how involved the company is in workplace raids, which is a growing phenomenon. According to the report by WNYC, from October 2017 to 2018, 1,525 arrests were made by ICE at workplaces nationwide for civil immigration violations. That's up from 172 the year before. The email showed Palantir employees giving ICE agents crucial technical guidance ahead of an upcoming operation to detain undocumented workers. What began as a $41 million contract with ICE from 2014 to 2017 has been extended every year since, according to government records. Palantir currently has a contract with ICE for more than 51 million. While this may be the first time you've heard about Palantir, a company we're very familiar with is making all of this possible. 
Amazon. It's a two-pronged issue. The first being that Amazon's cloud service, Amazon Web Services, hosts Palantir. And while Amazon isn't the only tech company doing this, it does have the most stake in the game. Amazon has more federal authorizations to maintain government data from a variety of government agencies than any other tech company. Amazon has 204 compared to Microsoft, which comes in second with 150. The second part has to do with Amazon's facial recognition technology, recognition. According to government documents obtained by a Freedom of Information request filed by the Project on Government Oversight, Amazon pitched its real-time facial recognition technology to ICE officials in 2018. With Amazon's recognition, ICE would be able to discreetly surveil public locations permanently by setting up cameras and linking them to Amazon software. Several studies have shown that facial recognition tech is more likely to mistakenly misidentify people of color as targets and lead to wrongful arrest. Amazon faced pressure both internally and externally following the release of these documents. Advocacy groups and Amazon employees called for the company to keep its facial recognition out of government agencies. Amazon wants to see a broader discussion about the issue. There's been relatively little discussion about whether regulation or legislation is needed in this new area. So where does this leave us? The 2019 federal budget includes an ICE technology modernization program worth $24.6 million, a biometric matching service worth $97.2 million, and an automated identification system worth $11.9 million. It's unclear whether or not AWS and Palantir are partners in this process. In a request for comment, Amazon responded saying it would not disclose any organizations that may or may not be customers without consent due to company policy. Palantir is yet to respond to our request. Welcome back to the review. Oh my. I'm gonna take a deep breath here. There was an article that came out recently about a new study, and oftentimes studies tell us what we already know, and it's also, I guess, important to have scientific data and backup to support our what we were already saying. So there's an article in the Real News, which is a site called therealnews.com. Uh, death by police is now the sixth leading cause of death among young men. Holy shit. And this came out on August 8th, 2019. It was once believed that police killings were the 14th leading cause of death among young people. However, a new Rutgers University study by Frank Edwards, which used federal statistics and journalistic investigation, found that the death rate is far higher now. And they discussed the research with Frank Edwards. So I'm going to play this now. And again, you can find this at therealnews.com. Welcome to the Real News Network. I'm Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us. A groundbreaking new study came out today, published by the National Academy of Sciences. The lead author, Dr. Frank Edwards, assistant professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University of Newark, who joins us today, found that black men and women, indigenous men and women, and Latino men have a higher lifetime risk of being killed by police than white people. While that in and of itself might not be earth-shattering news to many, especially those people who live in those communities, the way the study was conducted goes deeper than many of those in the past because of new issues they could deal with that they couldn't do before. Using more than just the National Vital Statistics System's mortality studies, 
And we are now joined by Dr. Frank Edwards, who was the principal author of the Rutgers study. As I said, he's assistant professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University, Newark. And welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So let's just start there. I mean, the, I, what I just said at the top and reading it, I mean, and especially having both covered and been involved in this for, for, for decades now, um, the idea that black men are killed at higher rates than other people in this country by police is, is not earth-shattering. <laughs> it's news. But talk a bit about why this study is different and what it adds to it uh, that we haven't had before. Right. The novelty of what we've done here is that you know, prior, uh, the availability of information on police-involved killings really hasn't been at a point where we've been able to classify how many people were actually killed by police and what the risk of being killed by police was, both in terms of annual risks and in terms of risks over the life course. That's largely a function of the availability of high-quality data that records police-involved killings. Uh, the federal government has never developed a comprehensive data product that tracks police-involved killings. Uh, journalists have really stepped into this void and have provided systems like fatal encounters. And what they've done is they've relied on news let me, reports. Let me stop for one second. What is fatal encounters? I never heard of it before you report. What is that? Yeah. So fatal encounters is a system that was developed by Brian Berghart. He's a newspaper editor from Reno, Nevada. And uh, as he tells it, you know, he was reporting a story on a fatal police shooting in Nevada uh, and was interested in developing some comparable statistics to think about how frequently this was happening in his community and was not able to find, uh, you know, any information uh, in any official data source. So he began a process where he, you know, submitted open records requests and eventually landed on this method of relying on news reports and a series of news alerts to classify and code cases of, of, of fatal police violence. Uh, over time, it's turned into the most reliable uh, source of information on police-involved killings in the country. So I'm curious, I mean, because how you even begin to do that, it's a huge undertaking to kind of look at all the new sources around the country and see what, I mean, to, to, to kind of analyze them all, go through them all, we're talking about 50 states, thousands of cities and counties around the country. So how, That's right. how, how's, how are they able to do that? Uh, so, uh, you know, He's been tireless in his work, and it's become his full-time job. Uh, he's had help from other uh, trained researchers, uh, but uh, it's been a monumental lift, and it's been five or six years. He believes that within you know the last couple of years, the data has become comprehensive, going back uh, to 2000. So he's believed he uh, he argues that he's got every case that's covered in the news going back to the year 2000. And our uh, research, we use what official data does exist, uh, which is through the national vital statistics. So those are the sort of coroners or medical examiners reports on official causes of death. And so we use those data to compare them to what fatal encounters records. So what did you the find what did you find in terms of the difference between what you found from the national statistics from the government and what you found in terms of what this particular site did? Yeah, so NVSS, the National Vital Statistics, uh, those are based on medical examiner's reports, and they record about 50% of all cases of uh, police-involved death that we uh, that occur in the country. So what uh, there's been a few other studies by other authors that have looked at the coverage of cases from National Vital Statistics relative to the coverage of cases in systems like fatal encounters, and have shown that fatal encounters is capturing nearly all the cases that medical examiner's record 
report is occurring due to police, but it's recording about twice as many cases. And NVSS is, is failing to capture a lot of those cases. Uh, so, so, you know, every case in the system is fact-checked. It's you know, linked out, there's a URL provided for each nugget of uh, information, each variable coded in the data set. So it's a really reliable data set. And the thing that we think is kind of fascinating about it is, is that the numbers that we're reporting um, are, you know, similar to numbers that you would get from the CDC for co you know, other causes of death, like suicide, homicide, cancer. Uh, we think that this kind of epidemiological or public health approach is a really powerful way to think about this phenomenon. Uh, but it's not until we've had these data that we've actually been able to build the kind of models we need to describe risk. Uh, the thing about fatal encounters, though, and it's it's uh, kind of the key limitation to the data, but also, um, you know, something for us to kind of think about is that the numbers that we report in the study are conservative, right? Because for a case to be recorded, it has to be reported by the news and picked up by the search method that the team uses. So there may be even more, is what you're saying. That's right. There are definitely more. So in, in, I'm, I'm curious, what you what, what you discovered, how is it different than what we've known before? I mean, in terms of the numbers, in terms of, um, in terms of actual people who were killed, percentages in terms of ethnicity in the country, what's different in terms of what you did? I read, I read part of the abstract, but what, what, what's different to what you did and what's been done before? Right. So we haven't had the kind of study that's modeled risk in the way that we've done it before, to our knowledge. Uh, Nancy Krieger at Harvard has done some pathbreaking work in this area, um, and she used the National Vital Statistics to look at risk of death over time uh, and found relatively high rates of death in earlier eras. Uh, but the problem is, as mentioned before with that data, is that we know it's an undercount. Right. So this is the first paper that's used these crowdsourced or these kind of journalist produced data, uh, these unofficial data to produce these kind of risk models. And so what's new is that we're finding that uh, lifetime risk for black men is about one death per uh, thousand people. So over the life course, we're estimating that for every hundred thousand black babies, black male babies born, by the time that that child dies, uh, that that person goes through their life course and eventually dies, we estimate that about a hundred of those will have been killed by police, which translates to a one in a thousand risk. We've never had a precise estimate of lifetime risk that could make those kinds of statements before. So what, uh, what does it mean to have a lifetime risk as opposed to the other statistical analyses that have been done before this? What does that mean? Well, so a normal analysis, we could take the number of deaths, divide that by the number of people in the population to get a risk per population, a risk per capita estimate, right? Uh, that'd be a standard kind of ratio of deaths per population. What we do in our paper is we use a demographic method called a life table. And so what we do is we have five years of data. We have 2013 to 2018 data that we use in this analysis. And what we can do is we can look at exposure to uh, death over that period of time and then run a simulation that asks, what if 100,000 people had been exposed to this risk and also exposed to the ordinary levels of death that exist in the population at each age, mm -hmm. and ask how many of them would eventually be killed by police as they ran, run through their life course, right? So we can effectively ask the question, if 100,000 babies were born today and were exposed to the ordinary levels of mortality that we see in the population, in addition to being exposed to the levels of police mortality that we observe in the data, how many of them, when they die, would have been killed by police? So one of the things that really jumped out, I mean, we've always known that police killings of, of citizens in this country are among the top 10 reasons people die in this country. 
but what you're discovering here for this age group is that they're the sixth largest reason, sixth most significant reason why people die and uh, in, in that age group. Yeah, so for young men between 20 and uh, 25 and 29, we find that police are the sixth leading cause of death, right? Um, now, the, in the vital statistics data would rank them at the 14th leading cause. So we, uh, our estimates revise that number. Uh, that's uh, huge. Quite I mean, that's a huge it, difference. Yes. Uh, so for, for young men in that age group, and this, you know, holds for young men roughly 20 to 29 as well, uh, you know, the, in order, it goes, you know, uh, accidents, which includes vehicles and suicides. Right. Uh, so, uh, I'm sorry, uh, vehicles and uh, overdoses, then suicides, homicides, uh, heart disease, which includes congenital heart uh, issues, cancer, and then police. Right. So police are uh, just under cancer in terms of killers of young men. So I know this is not part of your part of the study or part of what you're doing, but what does it say to you? I mean, you know, I was I, in terms of what it says about our society, what it says about uh, how we have to approach this. I mean, I mean, this is pretty stunning data. You go from 14th leading cause of death for young men to sixth uh, but at the hands of the police. That's a huge number. That's right. That's right. And so we uh, link this finding to a lot of prior research that shows that cr the criminal justice system has profound consequences for public health. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, exposure to aggressive stop and frisk policing has incredibly negative consequences for the mental health of the young people in New York City who routinely experience harassments and threats and actual, physical violence from the police. Uh, you know, uh, re Amanda Geller, Jeff Fagan, and a uh, number of other scholars have found PTSD-like symptoms among the young people who experience that kind of aggressive police stop, right? right? Um, there was a really fascinating study published in The Lancet last year that showed that in states where an unarmed black person was killed in that same state within a few weeks, you would see an increase in depressive symptoms among other people of color living in that state, other African-Americans living in that state. However, when an unarmed white person was shot and killed by police, you, not, you saw no similar increase in depressive symptoms for white residents of that state, right? So there's a sort of ecological effect on mental health that comes uh, from exposure to police violence that we think really indicates how people of color understand the police as a threat to their well-being. So this may a little sidebar before we have to go. I mean, one of the things I was looking at in your stats in terms of uh, indigenous people uh, in this country, uh, and I remember there was a CDC study, I guess it was last year, if I'm correct, it was 2017, it might have been last year, that, that showed that the population in this country that has the largest percentage of people killed by police are indigenous men and women. That, 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 was that borne out in your study as well? So it depends on how you classify it. When you use the National Vital Statistics, you do see a much larger share of American Indians and Alaska Natives killed by police as a proportion of the total of uh, killed. Now, we're showing larger numbers of American Indians and Alaska Natives killed by police, but the shares don't shake out in the same direction. It may be that Fatal Encounters is undercounting American Indians and Alaska Natives uh, because they are typically, at the, uh, uh, tribal affiliation is typically not reported in a news story, right? And so that's the primary source of data that Fatal Encounters is using, in addition to social media profiles and obituaries. So to the extent right. that tribal membership is not listed, in any of those places, 
people of American Indian or Alaska Native ancestry won't be identified in the data as clearly. So that's something we use some statistical models to try and address. It's possible and almost certain that we've missed some cases of American Indians and Alaska Natives who were killed by police. Well, I think that said, we do see high levels of inequality. So I think that what you've done here is really important in terms of advancing this conversation in our country on what to do to end uh, these police killings. Uh, especially in, in communities of color in this country. And so I think that uh, it's a really important piece of work you all have done. Um, Thank you. And I, and I appreciate you taking the time today. And, and I look forward to seeing what comes next uh, from what you all do up there in Rutgers. My pleasure. And just uh, as a final note, we are working on thinking about how tribal sovereignty affects exposure to police violence and thinking really seriously about the police as a sort of threat to uh, tribal sovereignty and what happens when we think about policing as a sort of colonial intrusion uh, into tribal lands and, uh, you know, the exertion of, you know, police force as an exercise of state power. Well, I'll tell you what, you keep us abreast of your work and we'll keep our viewers abreast of your work. How's that? (laughs) That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Frank Edwards. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much and for your work. And I'm Mark Steiner here for the Real News Network. Thank you all for joining us. Take care. All right. So this was an interview from the Real News Network, which you can find at therealnews.com. I'm going to talk about a couple things. Got a couple more. Also, a couple more, literally two more articles to get to. I also wanted to share an article I'm not going to be able to read today on the air, but wanted to... I also encourage folks to oftentimes uh, purchase a street sheet from vendors when you're able to, uh, and the Street Spirit, which is the one that's available in Berkeley. And for the international issue, which is the July 2019 issue, there's an article about Stonewall, about 50 years after Stonewall, uh, which is the most... Uh, 50 years after Stonewall, the most marginalized still face oppression, uh, which is an article that's written by Kathleen Hinkle. So I wanted to recommend that to folks. And there's lots of other articles uh, from uh, writers around the world. So again, this is the international issue of street spirit, which folks can pick up in Berkeley from any uh, vendors that you see. I think there's definitely folks who are on uh, Shattuck uh, if you are in that area. And also please do support that street sheet, which is sold by vendors here in San Francisco. So I wanted to share that. I did mention that there are protests again every day in August from noon to 1 p.m. at 630 Sansom Street in front of ICE. Uh, it's the month of momentum, 30 days of action to close the camps. Uh, different groups will be there every day. And then there's another uh, protest that I wanted to share information about, and that's happening on Sunday. And this is uh, Make Racism Wrong Again protest, which is happening this Sunday at 11 a.m., and it's happening at Harvey Milk Plaza in the Castro. So it's going to be from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Details say, no, 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 no. Why aren't we angry? Brown people are being hunted down. We need, we seem to be okay with this, are we? No more hate crimes. 22 dead, 26 injured in El Paso, Texas at the Walmart. Three dead, 12 injured at the Gilroy, California Garlic Festival. Nine dead, 27 injured, Dayton, Ohio. Oregon District, seven dead, 52 injured, Chicago, Illinois, multiple locations, all within two weeks. There may be many more injured or have died. No one knows the official count of injured or dead because some are avoiding hospitals because of immigration status. <sighs> um, this has to stop. White supremacy is at the, at the hands of Rump and his dog whistles of hate, and they have to stop. He has called his people to duty. Are we mad yet? Make your voices heard. Enough. Join us. Harvey Milk Plaza, corner of Castro and Market Street in San Francisco, Sunday, August 11th at 11 a.m. Taking it to the streets. Put your feet, put your feet in the streets. Period. 
have your voices heard. So there's going to be speakers there. And again, this is happening um, Sunday. Um, yes. So there's, yes, there's protests happening Sunday over in the Castro as well as outside of the, the ICE building as well. So if you're able to go to uh, one of the two, please do, and perhaps even go to both if you if you are able. Okay, so I wanted to share that. Okay, that's done. Next up, uh, plug the station. Uh, yeah, if you're interested in having a show here of your own, uh, we have slots available. Uh, so if you go to our website, mutinyradio.fm, you can find out more information there. If you would like to support this show in particular, um, I volunteer my time to do this. I have a Patreon set up that helps cover dues and anything that goes into that will help cover dues from the past. So I appreciate it greatly. And a big thank you to all the folks who donate on a monthly basis. Uh, if you go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev, anywhere from a dollar a month and more is greatly appreciated. So thank you so much for that. Um, I want to read a little bit of an article. Um, we're running a little bit low on time. It's almost 1.40 here. So I think I might read the first part of this article and then I'm going to end on something positive because there's a lot of terrible things that are happening. And also, as we heard in the phone discussion, there's lots of like activists who are putting their bodies on the line and people doing a lot of great things to uh, push things in the right direction. So I wanted to end on a positive note. So this one is not positive, although I guess it's, well... Yeah, it's not positive. It's not positive. However, it's, you know, people who are in positions of power who actually are being held accountable. Hopefully they're being held accountable. So I guess that's a good thing. But the fact that they exist in the first place is pretty disturbing. Okay. That's enough about me talking about it. If you go to, I think, Southern Poverty Law Center has an article about it, as well as Unicorn Riot, who did reporting on it under their hate watch section of splcenter.org, uh, which is a reading from right now, white nationalist State Department official surfaces in photographs. This came out on August 9th. Uh, it was written by Michael Edison Hayden. Uh, Hate Watch has obtained images of Michael, excuse me, of Matthew Q. Gebert, a State Department official who is involved in the white nationalist movement. Gebert oversaw the Washington, D.C. area of a white nationalist organization and has published hateful propaganda under the pseudonym Coach Finstock since 2015. Hate Watch reported Wednesday. The State Department has suspended Gebert from his job as a foreign affairs officer in its Bureau of Energy Resources, according to a report Thursday by Politico. A Gebert colleague who spoke to Hate Watch said the State Department sent Gebert, who describes himself who described himself as a white nationalist in a 2018 podcast, home from work Wednesday after the publication of Hate Watch's investigation, and he has not returned. We're a, ve- we're a very diverse bureau with lots of types of people he apparently hates the source told hate watch over a series of texts i'm dismayed to see he's only suspended i'm hoping it's just an intermediate step after hate watch published its investigation people sent photos and information to hate watch about gebert and his wife anna vukovic vukovic also is involved in the white nationalist movement and has used the pseudonym Wolfie James to post racist and anti-Semitic blog posts, Hate Watch reported. Among the photos Hate Watch received is one of Gebert at a white nationalist event in Charlottesville, Virginia on May 2017, months before the failed Unite the Right rally that August. A source who spent time at Gebert's home at gatherings with white nationalists told Hate Watch that the State Department official prohibited guests from taking pictures at his home. The May 2017 rally was a public outdoor event, and an anonymous tipster sent a photo from the event to Hate Watch. Gebert appears in that group photo wearing sunglasses, a white polo shirt, and khaki pants. 
One of Gebert's colleagues at the State Department who asked not to be named in the story, this story contacted Hate Watch after reading its investigation. That person confirmed the identity of Gebert in the rally photos. It is absolutely Gebert, the colleague wrote by text referring to the picture. A family friend who claims to have known Gebert for years also contacted Hate Watch. No question, the person said, confirming the identity of Gebert as the man at the rally in sunglasses in front of the person dressed in all black. The two sources who spent time at Gebert's house told Hate Watch they thought the man in the photo looked like him. Gebert also appears in photos on pages 38, 41, and 46 of the 2005 annual report for the U.S. Telecommunications Training Institute. The Institute is an international program providing diverse tuition-free communications, IT, and broadcast training for women and men who each day make modern communications a reality for their countrymen throughout the developing world, the guide explains. Gebert could not be reached for comment for the story. Uh, It goes on a little bit more. um, So if you'd like to read more, again, if you go to splcenter.org, you can read this uh, story. And again, it was written by Michael Edison Hayden. And also speaking of white nationalists, there was a Nazis blew up. There was an interracial couple in a small town in Ohio whose home was blown up and they found racist graffiti around uh, afterwards. So there's so just there's more and more terrorism by white nationalists here in this country. And wanting to to name that. There's and there's as I mentioned I think on the show last week, there's like so there's only so much that we hear about, that we know about, that gets to the media, that I remember to speak about here. So this is just a fraction. So whoever is listening to this show, wherever you live, if it's in the future, maybe, maybe it's in another, you know, another country, this is just like a glimpse. This is one sample of what's happening right now in the United States. This is only a sample. This is, uh, only from what I've heard, from what I get to, from what I have the emotional capacity to speak about from, yeah, it's, this is like a, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of stress. People are afraid. People are angry. People are scared. People are sad. People are frustrated. And also so many of the, the systems, you know, the systems that are in place have been around for such a long time that again, it's a lot of this isn't new. It's just a repeated pattern of people in positions of power, encouraging others to cause harm when they're not already causing harm on their own through policies. Oh, fuck. I am going to go into the next story. I think it's a little bit too, a little bit too short for uh, a music break before the next story. Although it would be nice to have a bit of a, a moment of, yeah, okay, I'll do, I'll do some music first, and then we'll go into that story. That sounds like it's it'll help me a little bit as we finish up the show. So please do stay tuned. Thank you. 
All right, and welcome back to Leak the Review. Got one more story for everyone this week. Not everyone, you know what I mean. People who are listening. <laughs> there we go. And uh, I did promise, well, I didn't promise. I try not to promise things. I did mention it would be a more positive, so this is something that's positive. And this is from The Intercept. Denver City Council, led by Democratic Socialist, stuns for-profit prison operators by nuking contracts. So there's something in the right direction. And again, the positive news stories on this show are when something negative stops happening <laughs> or is prevented from happening, but that's a good thing. So this was written by Ryan Grimm, and it came out on August 8th. Two for-profit prison companies have lost major contracts in Denver over their work in immigrant detention as backlash to President Donald Trump's immigration policy continues to mount. The stunning $10.6 million rebuke to the firm's core civic and GEO group was led by newly elected city, city council member Candy Sedabaka, who won in June on a radical platform backed by the Democratic Socialists of America. Sedabaka's stand on Monday against the firm's was her first major effort since being sworn in and she expected to be a lone voice vote and she expected to be a lone vote of dissent instead moved by the plight of those kept in camps run by core civic and the geo group and galvanized by opponents organized by setabaka at the public meeting the council delivered an unexpected eight to four rejection, ending the firm's contracts to run halfway houses on behalf of the city. CoreCivic and the GEO group run the bulk of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement's detention centers. The GEO group also runs an immigration detention center in Aurora, Colorado, which has become a source of local controversy. The disturbing images beaming from the border and pressure from repeated protests outside the detention center persuaded council members that their financial support of for-profit companies made them complicit in ICE abuses. The vote was another signal of the DSA's rising influence, even as its recent national convention was lampooned on social media for its excessive... Uh, I'm gonna... Okay. Okay. Um... Okay, I'm just going to continue reading this sentence. And the willingness of mainstream politicians to follow the lead of organizers and activists making a stark moral argument. Sedabaka told The Intercept that the effort can be traced to before her campaign and that her work as a community organizer and social worker helped her rally opposition to the contracts. At her urging, the key meeting was packed with opponents of the firms and experts lined up to testify against them. Broad-based community opposition from Colorado People's Action, Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition, the American Civil Liberties Union, Black Lives Matter, Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition, and DSA made an impact on Council members. I brought the testimony to the table so my colleagues could hear the facts and initially did not believe that anyone could vote with me, would vote with me, she said. So I was very impressed by the courage of my colleagues, the, the courage my colleagues displayed to vote with me on a very controversial issue, knowing we had no power to amend that contract. The council's vote was all the more remarkable because there were credible and sympathetic arguments against taking radical action. Some 500 people are currently in the four halfway houses run by CoreCivic and two run by the GEO group and are now at risk of being returned to prison. 
That's not their certain fate, however, as parole is a is an additional option. Advocates of ending the contracts focused on the moral case to be made and the potential for local community groups to run more humane halfway houses in the future. If we renew the contract, we're supporting organizations that provide valuable services to more than 500 people and 140 employees, said council member Chris Hines, spelling out the dilemma. We're also supporting organizations that put kids in cages, run concentration camps. Sidabaka acknowledged the moral quandary. I'm very concerned about the 500 beds that we jeopardize by this vote, and I want to see a plan to make sure that we transition out of these contracts in a way that is just for the residents of these facilities. That is just for the residents of these facilities, she said, arguing that a transition could be made in six to ten months, but the power to do it was in the hands of the mayor and the firms. There's essentially a monopoly emerging here, not just in Denver, but nationally with CoreCivic and GEO. That is a problem. For now, the halfway houses are being kept open without a contract, and the firms are under no obligation to close them immediately as corrections officials and city policymakers transition to a new system. Short-term contracts are also possible as the city works toward a system that returns the re-entry programs to local control and away from the for-profit operators, as it largely was before the firms bought out the organizations during doing the local work. Amanda Gilchrist, a spokesperson for CoreCivic, said that the firm would not immediately shutter and send its charges back to jail. While several questions exist about what happens going forward, we have agreed to keep our doors open to the clients we serve in the hopes of finding a resolution that works for everyone, she wrote in an email. Gilchrist also planned this also panned the city council's deeply misguided decision, which she said was a result of political recklessness. Judges will, for now, lose the option of sentencing defendants to halfway houses, making the alternative of prison more likely. More than 100 inmates in prison who were due to arrive in GEO group and CoreCivic homes are now in limbo. A residential substance use disorder clinic run by CoreCivic will close, and other supports will no longer be available, she said, adding that CoreCivic does not run any immigrant immigrant detention centers in Colorado specifically. Uh, these politicians have failed their community, blah, blah, blah. That's what she says. Uh, GEO group spokesperson. Okay. I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna scroll down here in the article. Cause I know we're running a little bit low on time and also have difficulty having to repeat the, the words of folks who work for these organizations. Told of GEO group statement, Setabaka was incredulous. Wow, I don't even have the words to respond to that, she said. The fact that our federal rep- representatives have to fight as hard as they're fighting simply to get in, to not even be able to get lists of the people who are in those facilities, that lack of transparency and accountability lets them get away with telling lies like that. For-profit prison companies have become an increasingly ripe target for criminal justice reformers and are beginning to have their status as ethically neutral, profit-seeking corporations challenged in mainstream circles. In July, ahead of a critical hearing before the House of Financial, the House Financial Services Committee, which is chaired by Representative Maxine Waters and boasts a number of high-profile progressive Democrats, SunTrust Bank announced it would no longer finance private prisons or immigrant detention centers. In 2018, organizers affiliated with the Democratic Congregational excuse me, I'm going way too fast, congressional campaign of Jess King blocked an effort by the city of Lancaster to outsource its prison reentry program to the GEO group. Democratic presidential candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren sent GEO group and CoreCivic's share prices 
on a nosedive in June when she tweeted a plan to end for-profit prisons. Sedebaka put her radical politics up front during the campaign. At a candidate forum, she bluntly spelled out her opposition to the current capitalist framework. I don't believe our current economic system actually works, she said. Capitalism by design is extractive, and in order to generate profit in a capitalist system, something has to be exploited. That's land, labor, or resources. I think that we're in late-phase capitalism, and we know it doesn't work, and we have to move into something new, and I believe in community ownership of land, labor, resources, and distribution of those resources. I'm excited to usher it in by any means necessary. I will end on that note. Uh, there's a little bit more that goes on in the article. So again, you can check it out at The Intercept. And it was written by Ryan Grimm and came out on August 8th. Oh, thank you so much for listening in. We'll be back next week. Uh, I'm going to play some more music from Kringbin. And uh, yeah, have a great week, everyone. And again, check out the rallies that are happening all throughout August outside the ICE headquarters, 630 Sansom Street from noon to 1 p.m. Take care, everyone.